You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me tonight in your Bibles to the book of First Chronicles. You might be surprised, thinking that that's no place to find heaven, but I disagree. First Chronicles 16, and we're going to be reading verses 28 to 34. You'll find this on page 347 of the Pew Bible. 347 of the Pew Bible. 1 Chronicles 16, verses 28 to 34. Hear the word of God. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, the last time we were looking at this particular series of heaven and hell, you may remember that we considered the nature of heaven. Paul says that he was caught up to the third heaven where he heard things that a man may not repeat. We found that heaven is a location prepared by God with spatial dimension. In fact, it's where the incarnate son now resides in his glorified human body. We also discover that heaven is to be characterized by eternal rest for the saints. No stress, no fatigue, no weariness or exhaustion, perfect tranquility. We learn that it's a place of absolute and unmixed and everlasting blessedness. Just as the pains of hell are indescribable, so the joys of heaven are beyond words. Moreover, it is both glorious, which is transforming, And it's eternal, without end. And that's the heaven of heaven, eternity. We'll be with Christ forever and ever. And so tonight it's for us to joyfully consider together the next phase, and that is the basis for heaven. The text this evening has to do with rejoicing over the presence of God. David successfully settled the ark in Jerusalem, and he gave instructions for corporate worship. And to commemorate this event, he wrote a thanksgiving psalm to be used in the public service of worship. And the overarching theme of that psalm is deep gratitude for the goodness of God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, he said, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And those are the opening words, in fact, for Psalm 106, which begins and ends with a hallelujah. Throughout Israel's history, God expressed his unchanging goodness. 
And that divine goodness is both rich and infinite and eternal and unchangeable. God is thoroughly and absolutely good. And no, no, no wonder he takes pleasure in himself. And that's not self-conceit either. It would be if it was us, but it's not with God. It's rejoicing in true goodness, which is the noble way to rejoice. And it is the unsearchable goodness of God that is the basis for heaven. This is most certainly implied when he assesses his own work of creation in Genesis 1.31. He said, and I quote, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So as he reviewed the work of his hands, he declared its utter perfection. Everything created was well made and without flaw and wholly impeccable. It was suitably designed and properly proportioned and perfectly adapted for the creatures that he would make. And the entire creation and its arrangement is an expression of God's goodness. And that includes things visible and things invisible, things seen and things unseen. In fact, verse 1 of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So heaven, as well as earth, is the fruit and expression of God's goodness. That's the basis of heaven. God's infinite goodness is its sure foundation. And what's interesting is that theologians have understood the goodness of God to be at least threefold. His essential goodness, his moral goodness, and his benevolent or generous goodness. Essential goodness is the perfection of his divine being. There's no lack or defect or flaw in God's holy nature or essence. He is essentially good. Nothing added could ever possibly make him any better. He is in himself the supreme and the ultimate and the eternal good, which is what older theologians used to call the summum bonum. Jesus says in Mark 10, 18, no one is good except God alone. That's his essential goodness. His moral goodness is the moral and ethical perfection of his being. His infinite holiness. You know, the angels never cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His infinite holiness and his righteousness are his moral perfection. He is the standard and rule of everything that is good and right among his creatures. The psalmist says in Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way so that everything he requires of us as moral agents is true and noble and right and good. His moral law is the perfection, the perfect expression of his moral goodness. So we have his essential goodness, we have his moral goodness, and we have his generous goodness. It's the inherent desire that he has to convey his goodness to others. Scripture highlights the, pro- the pleasure that God takes in conveying good. Micah 7.18, God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Judgment is his strange work. 
He's more ready to save than he's ever ready to destroy. And nothing pleases God more than showing mercy to penitent sinners. In Jeremiah 32, it says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will rejoice in doing them good. He is inherently disposed to diffuse his goodness. That's his very nature. And so in Psalm 119, David, reflecting upon this, says of the Lord, you are good and do good. He is essentially, he is morally, he is benevolently or generously good. He is, he does, and he gives good. And we're going to consider each of these aspects of goodness in relation to heaven. First, God's essential goodness is why heaven is the only place in the entire created order that remains very good. The scriptures make it clear that man's fall had cosmic ramifications. The creation was subjected to futility, according to Romans 8. Every square inch of the created order had been affected by sin, except heaven. That's because heaven is where God's essential goodness is fully displayed. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And so it's absurd to the point of insanity to think that God could ever dwell with evil. God's essential goodness prevents sin's corrupting influence from despoiling that perfect place of blessedness. Indeed, it was Christ's essential goodness that prevented the leper from defiling him. The hemorrhaging woman didn't defile Jesus, but rather because he is infinitely good, he healed the woman. And Mary didn't contaminate the holy child because the spirit, infinitely good, overshadowed Mary. You see, with men, this kind of thing is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Heaven has been shielded even from the withering and destructive influence of evil. And as a result, it continues this day as it was in the beginning. Very good. Satan no longer disgraces it with his unholy presence and his ungodly accusations, and heaven remains a place of original, absolute, unrivaled goodness. So to be in heaven, which is where we're heading, is to bask in the infinite goodness of the triune God. For those who dwell there, nothing clouds their vision of the divine nature. Only in heaven will all the dross of sin be removed so that we can see the Lord. And in that beatific vision, the believer will be transformed into Christ's likeness and sense his goodness, feel his goodness, enjoy his goodness. There are several ways in which scripture describes the experience of heaven. It's a better city. It's paradise. It's Abraham's bosom. It's the third heaven, and perhaps most common, it's being with Jesus. Paul says we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or again, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. John says that God's glory gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And our Lord himself says that heaven is where he is and where we will be also. 
You know, when Adam was exiled from Eden, the cherubim were assigned to guard the sanctuary. They were equipped with the flaming sword that turned every which way, and sinful man could no longer dwell safely with God's essential goodness. We'd be consumed. Reentry is now possible only through Jesus Christ, the mediator. He endured the death necessary to reopen the gates of heaven. And whoever sincerely trusts in this Christ for salvation is assured of a place in heaven. We're told in Hebrews 10, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. That's the essential goodness of God in relationship to heaven. But then secondly, God's moral goodness is why heaven is in perfect conformity to his will. On earth, no longer do we find moral rectitude. Rather, immorality prevails out there and in here. It's hard. You know it, and I do too. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's Paul's assessment. And in these and following verses, Paul gives a withering rebuke to mankind. The cursed world in which we live has become an unholy realm of evil. And in these lower regions, devils roam and the depraved riot. It's an evil and adulterous generation, according to Matthew 12, and a faithless and twisted generation, according to Matthew 17. And at Pentecost, Peter identified it as a crooked generation in Acts 2. The days are evil, Ephesians 5. We live in the present evil age, Galatians 1. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5. But God's kingdom is advancing, and the churches are called to be lights of righteousness, And at these outposts in this fallen world, we gladly confess and we willingly bow, but there is still evil. Yet in heaven, God's moral goodness is fully and clearly and perfectly displayed. It's where the angelic beings praise and obey the Lord without deviation. It's where the glorified saints are made perfect and rejoice to do his will. It's the ultimate paradigm for everything that goes by the name of righteousness. This is why heaven is the standard by which you and I are to frame our prayers. Isn't that correct? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer that we obey as humbly and willingly as the angels do in heaven. As is God's being, so are God's deeds. All of his works are utterly and morally good. And the work corresponds to the workman, and heaven remains today very good. All who dwell in his glorious presence are good and reflect his goodness. That's his moral goodness. But then third... God's benevolent or generous goodness is why heaven is blessed and full of joy. As God delights in his own goodness, so he delights in conveying it to you and me. It brings him pleasure. 
I don't know why, but it does. It brings him pleasure to communicate his undiluted happiness to his saints. Even here in this life, on this globe, he's pleased to bless his people. Psalm 84, he assures us, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It is true, Scripture indicates that God takes some degree of pleasure in punishing sin, according to Deuteronomy 28. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. But you see, the descriptions of meeting out punishment and conveying good are very different. God pours out his wrath reluctantly after much long suffering. He is slow to anger. Lamentations 3, the Lord does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Or Ezekiel 18, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. By contrast, the Bible says that he longs to show mercy and to convey his goodness. Micah 7:18, he delights in steadfast love. And those who believe in Jesus by his grace and the power of his spirit benefit from all the goodness that God has to offer. We go to heaven where he enables us to enjoy him fully and perfectly. Even in this life, you know as well as I do that we receive wonderful foretastes of his goodness. Psalm 73, the psalmist there begins that struggle that he had by saying, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In fact, every work of God is an expression of his goodness to his people. The whole universe exists for his glory and the good of his bride, the church. And this is especially true of redemption, which is the ultimate expression of his goodness. It is the promise that he will keep because Jesus has paid the ransom. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, said the psalmist, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. So in reflecting upon this, his essential goodness, his moral goodness, his generous goodness in relationship to heaven. Let's realize that the reason heaven is so wonderful is because God is so good. Is it any wonder that his goodness was the focus of the devil's assault? Genesis 3.1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is he so stingy and ungood? Do you mean to tell me that he forbade you from eating the fruits of this, these trees? Who does he think he is prohibiting you from pleasant trees like this? And therefore, thereby Satan tried to weaken man's trust in the Lord's goodness. And he succeeded. But with Christ at our side and with heaven in view, we can affirm his infinite goodness. As we sing in Psalm 100, give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And whatever you and I need for this pilgrimage, God is willing and able to provide. Whatever it is, he assures us that at the end of our journey, we will enter the place of his undiluted goodness. 
So let's rejoice in the wholesome goodness of heaven because it fulfills the overarching promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He made this promise to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. He reaffirmed this pledge to his people on the brink of the promised land. He repeated the blessing when he was predicting their return from the exile. And the risen Jesus offers this to the New Testament church as the reward for her faith. Nowhere is this blessed promise more fully realized than in heaven. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see what he's saying? The Lord Jesus has brought us into an eternal, loving relationship with God the Father. We're reconciled to God. Our enjoyment of God will be glorious and eternal. And that's the glory of Christ's church, and it's the joy of Christ's people. Is it not a glorious wonder that the infinite God would dwell with human beings? In heaven, we will bask in his glorious presence and relish his divine goodness. On earth, so many things distract and interrupt our fellowship with him. But there, in heaven, we will enjoy the unremitting pleasure of his goodness. In Christ and by Christ, we will be filled with all the fullness of God. As Matthew Henry puts it, God himself will be our God. His immediate presence with us, his love fully manifested to us, and his glory put upon us. That will be our perfect happiness, free from all trouble and sorrow. His spirit will somehow supernaturally and graciously satiate our beings with the rich, inconceivable joys that will never end. John Flavel remarvels at the incredible change that takes place at a person's death. And this is what he says. It is your passage out of the swift river of time into the boundless, bottomless ocean of eternity. We now live day to day, sunrise to sunset, week after week, but in eternity there will be no time. It will be the everlasting now. And for endless ages, a person's destiny will be set, never to be changed. So it's a very serious thing to die. Our future will be fixed forevermore. Again, to quote Flavel, the souls of men are, as it were, asleep now in their bodies. At death, they awake and find themselves in the world of realities. Will you be welcomed into heaven or will you be cast into hell? Let's set our minds on things above rather than on things upon earth. We considered the basis of heaven where believers will spend eternity. And let me just say then how precious is the time given to accept the terms of salvation. I'm not just speaking to adults here. I'm speaking to children. Children, how precious is the time given to you to accept the terms of salvation? 
Again, if I could quote John Flavel one more time, perhaps my favorite theologian, this is what he says. Oh, what a huge weight has God hanged upon a small wire. God has set us here in a state of trial. According as we improve these few hours, so will it fare with us to all eternity. Should we not fix our thoughts and set our affections upon heaven above? There may be sufferings, granted. You may have to deny yourself, true. You may have to do so to prepare yourself for heaven, So what? The disproportion between time and eternity is infinitely vast. Would we not sacrifice anything if it stood in the way of eternal life in heaven? Moses made the wide choice, the wise choice. He let go of the Egyptian privileges. It says he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to the reward. He was looking to heaven, and Moses was no fool. It was all for eternal life. The penitent thief on the cross spent a life in wickedness for which he was executed, rightly so. But when he expressed faith in Christ on that cross, Jesus made him a solemn promise. He said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, he said, you'll be with me in the place of pure blessedness. You'll have the fullest and the most intimate communion with me. And this man had been profane and wretched, and he deserved condemnation. But God gave him a believing heart, and at the last gasp, he was converted. He trusted in Jesus even amid all the shame and the reproach of the cross. In like manner, doesn't it behoove us to seek heavenly things, to set our affection upon heaven? That begins by acquainting ourselves with them and meditating on them. How careful should we be not to grasp too tightly the things of this world or even the people of this world? Let's not devote ourselves to them or expect too much from them. We seek a better country because our citizenship is forever in heaven. That's where our final home will be. And that's where our greatest interest lies. May everyone take these words to heart. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are infinitely good. You are essentially morally and generously good as we have seen. And this is what makes heaven heaven. And how thankful we are that you've promised in Jesus Christ to bring us to this glorious place, to fill us with joy unending, and to share your goodness with us. We ask help to sing your praises in a manner that is worthy of such an infinitely good God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more 
more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.